If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its glory without the ads. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time and it is a very strange time in financial markets in the global economy. I have a sense, only a sense, because these things are more hunches than any scientific, let's say, insight. A sixth sense that the 1920s, an amazingly brilliant decade in many ways, and also amazingly terrifying in many ways, is having its replay in the 2020s. And the 1920s ended with the Great Crash, we know. Mm -hmm. And we're going to discuss that, John, the Great Crashes, Great Crashes, because my sense is that there are a lot of similarities. Now, those similarities may or may not end up pushing the world in the same consequential way. But I'm going to talk about that because we're going to discuss a great book that has just landed yeah, my, what, what is it? It's called The Great Crashes, Lessons from Global Meltdowns, How to Prevent Them by Linda Yo, who you know and you've met. Yes, yes, yes. So we're going, to discuss, far, we're going to discuss that, but I was in Roundstone this week. <laughs> Good I man. Was, and I was in Good King's man. Bar in Roundstone. A this fine week. establishment. A very fine establishment. And I was sitting there talking about, you like this because you're into nature, mm-hmm. the impact of mink on wildlife. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. That apparently minks have been released into the wild all around Connemara. Yes. And they are destroying. We were discussing, this is, we're discussing the absence of the hedgehog, right? So it was Joe King was discussing with a fellow called John, a fellow called James, and I was interloping, right? <laughs> As you do. And we were discussing the absence of the hedgehog in Roundstone and yeah. Connemara in general. And the gents were telling me this it's is because all, of the mink. That the mink is a brutal scavenger and it's killing everything. Yeah. In its wake. Every, it's, it's a fabulous animal. But it's, it's killing everything. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 but it's one of those predators that has to be admired. 
You know, not not as far. No, no, no. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're the prey. If you're the, like the little hedgehog, oh, but, you know, you don't, but it's you a, don't it's like that I've got a hedgehog fetish going on here. <laughs> Another one of your many fetishes. Yeah. But you know what's interesting, though? Uh, and I just, just thought so, you might have enjoyed the conversation. I'm also going I, to tell you about a view that they have about Connemara being turned into a theme park. Which I thought was a very interesting view. Oh right, yeah, I can I can imagine that. Then, but just just on on mammals, you know that Ireland has very few mammals, I'm native mammals, <laughs> compared to middle aged man. The UK. There, for, for instance, no moles in Ireland, and what actually happened was, was that because of the Ice Age, exactly that they were all all the mammals were migrating. As they, they do. Didn't get as, here quick enough. And exactly. And Ireland was cut off from the mainland. <laughs> and but it's really interesting. So there's a there's a very different collection of mammals in Ireland than there are in the rest of Europe. And we're not half as diverse, are we? No, not, no, not at all. But that makes sense if you're if you're hmm. if you're the last bit of the continent where everyone is migrating to. Exactly. So when mink, who are not native, are released, they go crazy. And they, they don't have a natural predator. Precisely. Which is a bit like if you read Sapiens, you yes. know, the book by Yuval Harari. Mm. And he talks about when humans arrived on the Australian continent 50,000 years ago, mm. the human was a natural predator that had never seen been seen before and didn't have a natural predator to keep our population down. Yeah. And he talks about the total, total decimation of diversity, of animal diversity in Australia within 10,000 years of us arriving. Yeah. We killed and, everything. And 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 they brought with them rats, mice and rabbits that were not native to... Which also carried diseases, which and destroyed... And they just destroyed, they ate everything and there were huge population booms and they still have big problems with that now. And you see, this is what happens. You go to Kings for a few scoops and you're talking about <laughs> extinction, <laughs> extinction rebellion. The other point, and I'm going to come back to it, is we were discussing about planning for housing down in the countryside. Mm. And the lads, they were all local lads, they were making the point that the national school in Roundstone, mm-hmm. where I got married or where you and I have gone to for many, many years, had around the time I got married, about 25 years ago, right? Mm, the foggiest had day the hot, ever. The most brutal day ever. I love it. It was a great vision. It was a great Connemara day. The clouds came in yeah. and you saw absolutely nothing. Nothing, nothing. nothing. You, you could barely you see the hand in front of your face. I know, it was brilliant. Perfect summer's day in Ireland. Perfect summer's day in Ireland. Great, great day for a wedding. Yeah. And, the, and, 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 and the church leaked as well. That's right. The, the rain was lashing in. The, anyway, but they were making the point, back then there were... 125 kids in the local national school in Roundstone. Now there are 19. Wow. And they're making the point that the reason this is, is that the locals can't afford to live there. Nor can they get planning permission. So if they were, if their uncle gives them a half acre land, right? Mm. They can't get planning permission to build. So they're not living there, right? Why can't they get planning permission? They just said it's incredibly difficult for them right. to, get, to get planning permission to build. And I was just sitting there listening to them uh, and just mulling over that this, I think it's worth it's worthy of a podcast. This idea mm. we're going to go we're going to go to people down the country, particularly down the west of Ireland, and what they're saying, of course, is that every time a house comes up, it's you know bought by somebody from Dublin or or yeah. Galway G four as they call it, right? Yeah, yeah. And 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 where you see this manifestation of it is in the local national school, because if the notion, local national school dies. The community is dying. Yes. That's the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll talk about that again and whether it's planning, whether it's not planning. But one of them was just like saying sometimes they get the impression as local locals that Ireland wants to turn Connemara into a theme park 
into like a I, Disneyland. I can see that. I can understand Disneyland that. for yeah, tourists. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, like, and with no prospect for the locals to live there, mm. to live a full life. Yeah. Yeah, you can live a life servicing tourists three or four months a year, but to live a full integrated annual yeah. every month yeah. uh, life. So let's let's discuss that. Ransom wouldn't be alone in that either, I'd say. Yeah, but yeah. we can discuss that at length. Now we're going to go from that, John, from mink, from one-off housing, and from the extinction of mammals in <laughs> Australia to great crashes. Don't say we're not eclectic on indeed, a Tuesday morning. Indeed. So, John, let's go to London. Linda Yeo, yep. one of the finest economists writing, great macroeconomist, uh, I think originally from Taiwan, but educated in the United Kingdom. And she has written a great, she wrote a great book a couple of years ago on great economists. That's right, yeah. It was, it was basically the kind of, so biography, a short but succinct and beautifully well-written biography of great economists, right? And it's a really wonderful yeah, thing to do. Yeah, she did a great show in, in Kilconomics that year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now she's back with great crashes, great economists, great crashes. And again, it's it's taking the same thing, it's, it's 10 crashes and what we can learn from them. And given what I said at the top of the show, which is that I have the feeling that we are moving into a period where these will become considerably more rather than less frequent. Right. I think it's interesting to talk to Linda about what she gleaned and found out from writing this book. So let's go to London. Linda, lovely to see you. Yesterday, I meandered up to Dubray Books, which is here in Dunleary, not a big shop. And there it was on the very first day of publication, The Great Crashes Lessons from Global Financial Meltdowns and How to Prevent Them. Oh, David, that is such lovely news to hear. And I'm just delighted to hear the book is out in, you know, Ireland the same day. I mean, this is terrific. No, it's great. It's wonderful. So we're going to go quickly into it. It's, It's a history of crashes. One thing we know in economics is that financial crashes repeat themselves. Not always the same, not always the same time frame, but there's something we can almost bank on that these things will come around and then they'll go. And you've 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 done a, a great service by outlining the, the weirdest thing is I have either lived through or participated in almost all of them, which is shows how dated I am, how ancient I am, except for the savings and loans in the United States. So let's start. We talk about first the sort of phenomena that are booms and busts and crashes. Give me the the top line on those things. Why are they repeat themselves? Why do they happen? What do we learn from them? Great question. So the book covers a near century of financial crashes since 1929. And there's three phases of every crash. And the first one is euphoria. The second one is credibility of policies to try and resolve it. And the third one is the aftermath. And that is determined, um, as you would expect, by the first two. So why do crises repeat themselves? It's you know, it's human nature. It's when you see prices go up, whether it's stocks or housing, there is a sense of euphoria, you know, so that is the um, the first phase of every uh, financial bubble. And then, yep. and then inevitably, too many people pile in. And the most damaging part is not necessarily that they pile in, is that they pile in with debt. So the amount of debt is what determines when the bubble bursts, what happens. So if the debt is huge and it brings down the banks, those are the kinds of crashes that have the worst impact on people's lives. Those are the ones that lead to recessions. But some big crashes actually have no economic impact on people's lives. For instance, in 1987, it was the uh, worst one-day crash of the U.S. stock market to date. 
and the economy barely felt a blip. So that is the first uh, phase. The second phase is the resolution phase. So are there credible policies um, to try and make sure that when the inevitable bubble bursts, it doesn't devastate people's lives? So um, I cite a study by the International Monetary Fund that says the first 10 months are absolutely essential. So I write about the Japanese crash. They didn't take 10 months. They took more like four years. And you can see the aftermath, decades of stagnation on the back of that. And then on the aftermath, I outline a number of different financial crises, all sorts of varieties of them from housing to stock markets to currency. And what they share in common is if it's been fueled by debt and the policies are not credible, then those lead to the worst economic outcomes. And banking crises have a tendency. So what happens when you have too much debt is that you can bring the banks down. And the aftermath of banking crises are absolutely you know, horrendous. Don't worry, um, we, we know all about that in this country. We know yeah. all about that. We, 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 we actually, we decided to kind of see you and raise you, if you, if you will, in the poker stakes and the banking crises. Let's talk about the Great Crash, like 1929. It's one of the very few economic events that looms large in cultural in literary, in political imagination. I have a sense that the 1920s are being repeated in the 2020s. I think there's a lot of similarities. So tell me about 1929. Tell me about the aftermath, the policy reaction, the whole thing. Because it still is, you know, it's it's food and drink, whether it's the Great Gatsby, whether it's the Grape of Wraths, whether it's all sorts of stuff like that. It's a deeply cultural moment in, in global history. Yeah, completely agree. So the 1929 Great Crash is the first um, chapter of the book. The three lessons that I just outlined are actually drawn from 1929. So in terms of the euphoria, there was a real belief that the 1920s saw things like uh, the widespread use of automobiles, uh, electrification in households, consumerization of goods. All of those things had been there, but it seemed that we were on the cusp of something really exciting, the mass usage of all these technologies. And that fueled the stock market bubble. And then when the stock market bubble burst, the amount of people who had invested a margin, meaning they borrowed money to do so, meant that it ended up to be a devastating crash. So again, the debt part here is key. So people were borrowing other people's money to bet on the market. And then once the market collapsed, they had to pay that money back. So they had to find that money from somewhere. Exactly. And they borrowed from the banks. And so it became this huge banking crisis. And that irrational exuberance is a term that comes up later with the dot-com bubble. But this idea of exuberance, euphoria, uh, fueled by debt, led to, you know, at one point, bank failures, uh, massive unemployment, complete devastation. So the second phase of the resolution um, was absolutely another place where lessons could be learned. So 1929 was the crash. 1933 was the bottom of the economic disaster. That's four years. Four years. So I write about four years. I mean, just think about that. The Great Depression was just uh, the worst. And so FDR uh, literally had just been elected a few days into the office. He shuts down all the banks for the weekend. And then he does this famous fireside chat where he convinced people it would be better to put your money in the bank than under your mattress. And it was credible, not just because he had come in, shut out the banks and, you know, really focused on the resolution uh, part, but because he had legislation 
backing that up for him. So in other words, there was no deposit insurance uh, until that point. So people rightly pull their money out of the bank. Yeah, because they were, they were they may not, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Made perfect sense. But that also came in after FDR came into office. So he did what his predecessor, Hubert Humphrey, could not do for years, which is turn the crisis. So after his fireside chat, they, I'm sure they held their breath and waited until Monday. And it turned out people were queuing outside the banks once again but they were queuing to put their money in and not to take their money out. And that was the turning point of the Great Crash of 1929 and the nadir of the 1930s Great Depression. And the aftermath, and this is also another lesson, is um, we know the Great Depression lasted throughout the 1930s. There was a second recession in 1937, 1938, known as the recession within a depression. And the cause of that was because of premature withdrawal of government policies, monetary policies, fiscal policies. So how policies operate matter a huge deal for people's confidence and for support of the system. And withdrawing it too soon meant that the Great Depression lasted throughout the 1930s. It actually didn't really end until the start of World War II, roughly thereabouts. So that's why the Great Crash looms so large, because we never want to repeat the 1930s. So your great question allowed me to draw out the three phases that I'm describing, because that's where all the lessons, you know, that lots of policymakers are keen to learn about actually stem from. Absolutely. And, and, and it is the one that has almost, you could say, a happy ending to it, which is the is the fact that the economy did recover. Now, let us propel ourselves forward. You talk about in the book, and I think it's very interesting, you talk about currency crises. And, and again, these are kind of the sort of this, the poor cousin of crises in a way, because they only really affect the countries that are affected. But when you're living in one of those countries, I can tell you it's actually quite serious. And many years ago, when I started first in the Irish Central Bank was in 1992, and we were sitting around there, everything was going fine, we were tied to the German mark, then suddenly the Brits fall out of bed, and we get a currency crisis out of the blue, comes out of the blue. You talk about this, these crises, but you talk about the Latin American crisis, you talk about the Asian crisis in 97, and in 97 I found myself bizarrely on Halloween night at the IMF's annual bash in Hong Kong, right in the eye of that particular storm. Explain to me how these work and why it's significant for now, because right at the moment, we have many countries that still have currency arrangements, they're still trying to follow the dollar, they are coming under pressure, they come under pressure regularly. Explain to the listeners this idea of currency crashes. Absolutely fascinating, David. Um, this is why I love talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> podcast host slash insightful economics comments. I mean, this is what makes for a great conversation, you know, and your experience of it. So that's actually the second chapter of the book, because the reason we have had so many financial crises, um, we've always had them for centuries, but one of the reasons why we've had so many in, you know, the 20th century going to 21st century is actually because financial markets are hugely connected. So it's called contagion. And you see that most in a currency crisis. So what is a currency crisis? Um, so currency crisis is when somebody loses confidence that a currency peg, so some type of value that you put on your currency peg to another currency, then means that once you lose confidence, you start to sell off that currency. So it comes in different guises. But the lesson is if you have a pegged currency of some sort, you are vulnerable to a crisis. 
So in the first generation model I write about in Latin America in the early 1980s, that is on the back of financialization of international markets. So, you know, you can see how quickly financial crises can spread on the back of linkages. And you saw that across Latin America. So currency uh, traders lost confidence and just didn't sure. believe these currencies could keep the dollar peg. 1992, second generation crisis. These are called self-fulfilling crises because like you said, you know, you were just kind of wrapped up in it. We were just sitting there. We were sitting there. We are thinking, hold on a second, hold on a second. We've just kind of managed to come out of it. The 1980s, which was a nightmare in Ireland. Everyone's sitting around and in the middle of October, suddenly, boom, we've got a crisis and money starts flowing out of the country in hundreds of millions of old punts, which were our currency back then. That's when hundreds of millions meant something. This was real money back then, right? And then if you project forward to the Asian crisis, you have this again, something similar. The Asian crisis, everyone's saying, you know, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, of course, Hong Kong or whatever. These countries have figured out how to expand their economy. This is the new way. These are the new tigers. And then bang, Thailand goes first and suddenly the whole thing collapses. Yeah, great summary. So if I just draw the lessons that um, I write about from there. So 1992 is the European exchange rate mechanism crisis, the ERM crisis. Yes. They're called self-fulfilling because there was no reason, no fundamental reason, like in Latin America, where the traders just thought, you know what, the deficits are too big. We don't believe this peg. So the speculators hadn't decided that it wasn't credible. You would necessarily have been in a crisis. And the example I give here is the reason that George Soros, the hedge fund, he lost confidence in the UK, not because of, you know, what I just described as trade deficits or something fundamental, but because German reunification meant that German interest rates were going up. And if you're pegged to the Deutschmark, your interest rates have to go up. But the UK was in a recession. So once they raised interest rates to 12%, (laughs) 15%, they decided at 7pm that night on Black Wednesday, oh, we're good. (laughs) We're just going to, we're not going to prioritize the currency peg over the recession and unemployment, raising interest rates to that level in a recession is absolutely devastating. But to give you a sense as to why central banks could, the Rix Bank, the Swedish central bank, they raised their rates to like 500%. So you could do it to maintain the peg if it means that much to you. Well, <laughs> but I think the lesson we learned is it doesn't the, mean that much. Exactly. <laughs> the, the, the lesson from these currency crises is that, you know, economists and, and financial players, and particularly central banks and departments of finance, they, they put their entire credibility into a price that actually most people don't give a sugar about. And the currency falls and we readjust. Now, let's go forward because the, 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 the book then goes into savings and loans. I'm going to leave that aside. But that is an, an interesting American one because it, it was a commercial property market collapse. And now in the United States, we're looking at a commercial property market collapse. So give me a little echoes of today for savings and loans. It's again, the late 1980s, same sort of period. Perfect. Yeah. Mark Twain reportedly said history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So what's happening in the U.S. today with the mid-tier banks, very reminiscent in many ways of the 1980s. So savings and loans in the United States are like this. They're like the uh, building societies here. And they're small, but there's a lot of them. (laughs) And they can be massively overexposed to property. And it was a very slow burning crisis throughout the 1980s. When I wrote about it, there was just fantastic um, characters in yes there I are mean, fantastic characters like people people you wouldn't I mean, oh. people you wouldn't lend a fiver to let alone lend 500 million to 
Exactly. You know, Junk Bonds, Michael Milken. This was the basis for the film Wall Street. Gordon Gecko was actually based on several of the characters here. You know, people who are just wheeling and dealing. And a lot of it was around, you know, commercial real estate, especially in the southern part of the United States. So fast forward to today, commercial real estate is again in the spotlight because the four bank failures we've had in the U.S. And of course, there's Credit Suisse in Switzerland as well. So you can see the contagion when people lose confidence, uh, when investors lose confidence, is that in the U.S., there's massive exposure to commercial real estate at the moment. And you've realized that the mid-tier banks are not as well capitalized as the bigger banks. So it's a slow burn at the moment. You know, but one thing I certainly stress and you mentioned at the beginning is we will always have another financial crisis. And, you know, and the lesson we need to learn is just because these banks look small at the moment and it's continuing to roll on, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep a vigilant eye on it because the savings and loan crisis, by the time it was resolved and bailed out by President George Bush, the first one, it was the most expensive bank rescue in U.S. history to date. Yes. And the funniest thing with savings and loans, there was no real technology involved. There was no sort of moment. There was just kind of low interest rates and people in the banks decided, you know, I want a piece of that. And and again, it does look, and we're going to come back to it later on in our discussion, that the savings and loans is an interesting template for these mid-sized banks in the United States right now. Let us project forward. We're keeping going. This is, we're, we're, going, we're going quickly, right? To the dot-com. I think one that many of our listeners probably will have first come across sort of crises when the dot-com crises, you're talking the early 2000s. That was a funny one because that was all to do with a perception that the world is changing. And it's, the, the nub is that is the fact that the speculator loves a bit of technology because it gives them super normal profits if it works. Tell me about that one, the the, the dot-com crash. Yeah, that was just, um, it's probably one of the ones that when I was writing about, you just marvel at the stories <laughs> you had, you know, so you can, you can say in a sense, maybe the companies were just too early. So everyone got really excited in the late 1990s about this thing called the internet and buying things online and not having to go into a physical store. However, everybody at that time was largely still using dial-up modem. Yes, I remember the sound of it. You remember remember them, David? (laughs) Dialing up. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so so somebody would be like, get off the modem so I can make a telephone call. I mean, that was the era in which we lived. And yet we had these dot-com companies, pets.com, garden.com, and they hadn't made any profit. They were spending huge amounts on these websites, some of which wouldn't load properly because of the dial-up modem. Yeah, I remember. Investors were piling in and there was such euphoria. We were at this technology turning point. Like you said, this is the era of e-commerce. But maybe they were just too early. Maybe they were too exuberant. Maybe they were slightly irrationally exuberant, which is where the term actually comes from. And you don't get a sense that some of these companies were... You know, I'll give you an, the example of what I mean. So the guys who ran Garden.com, they had no gardening experience, but they have done, you know, business before. But the thing I always mention is they didn't even like gardening as a hobby. So you don't, there was, right. you know, so when you want to think about, uh, you know, startups fast forwarding to today, I think obviously the technology has matured. E-commerce is absolutely massive. And you do have founders who are, you know, they can really see there's passion in a way that yes. maybe in the earlier ones. Once, just, you know, had it gelled by that point. 
So dot-com bubble, absolutely huge. It burst, as you would expect with all of these things, but the policies were credible at that point. There was the United States really made an effort to not just cut interest rates, but you even had, and this is actually very important as well, giving there were incentives to help people buy cars, because remember, this is also after 9-11. And so there was a second element to, to the support yes, that was needed. I remember that. So it became a really shallow recession. However, still a recession. And you know, and the lesson fast forwarding to today is we now have a tech bubble which is deflating. Well, actually, as I write about in the book, uh, pretty much, you know, I think 80% fall in values of some companies count. That's as a crash. deflation. Yeah, that's a, that's <laughs> yeah, a crash. Yeah. <laughs> so it's still playing out. So again, you know, looking at it is we will always have this excitement around technology. People will pile in. It's very hard to know, as in the dot-com bubble, if it's a bubble or a shift in fundamentals. Yes. How you view today's tech buildup is exactly that. Is it fundamentally we shifted into an era of, you know, tech companies that are, you know, transforming software as a service, all sorts of things. Is it a bubble? But I guess the lesson here is if you're going to pile in, try not to do it with too much debt because that's Let's look at now, because I mean, what, what, what tends to also happen for all these, you know, euphoria is financed by debt. It means there's a massive monetary expansion to facilitate everything. So lots of people are looking at the last 20, say 12 months, 18 months as like, is this the beginning of something absolutely major, where you have huge crashes in tech companies, you have a withdrawal of liquidity, you've got all sorts of geopolitical and political problems, you've trade problems, etc. And you also have the sense that the very easy money of the last couple of years, compounded by the pandemic, that the bill for this has not necessarily been paid that there is an invoice on the table and somebody's going to have to pick it up. What's your sense now, given that you've done the book, you've done the 100 years? The, by the way, the book is fantastic. If you're into the Japanese crash, we can't get into it here. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. The Asian crash. Then, of course, the big one, 2008, that we Irish people remember to our chagrin, lamentably, because it was so viscerally scorching for many, many people here. But now, let's look at the world now, Linda. What, having written the book, have you learned and what does it equip you to talk about right now? What, what would you say to people? So at this point, I think we are in the midst of at least two different crises, a mid-tier US crises and a tech crisis. So I think the lesson, and I draw individual lessons for people at the end of the book, which is it's very hard to tell if it's fundamental or a bubble. So by all means, you know, be part of it, but just limit your debt. And in this part of the cycle, also be very careful if you're going to, for instance, you know, crystallize those losses in the market by either coming out. So I'm thinking people with their pensions, right? So this is not yeah. a great point. There's a lot of volatility. So just get some advice. Be very sure that this is the right part to come out of the market because the market, we say the market, but there's different markets. And then I would finally say your point about interest rates is spot on because cost of borrowing is higher and that is going to dampen economic activity, which is, you know, and I write about the cost of living crisis, lots of different factors pulling together here, but it just makes that debt very hard to repay for companies as well as for people. So credibility of policymaking to be on top of that is challenging when policymakers are focused on, you know, cost of living, inflation pressures, when the financial stability part is also actually trying to pull the other way that, you know, you would need 
interest rates to do many things, and it, ca- it can't really. So the big lesson is central banks now have macro potential tools. So they have other instruments to try and deal with financial stability. Along with the along with the expression smart casual, macro potential tools is one of the scariest expressions in the English language. Because yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> so, and also it's very new. We only brought it in about 10 years ago. So I think that the lesson here, and we have learned it over the past few crises, is if you have an objective, you need a tool. So price stability, you've got interest rates. Financial stability, you need another tool. So, you know, so having some type of a look at loan to value ratios, looking at banks capitalization, that's what macroprudential tools are trying to do. And I think that's where it is going to be tested now because of the current conditions. Absolutely. Hugely important, I think. And I think to just, you know, very finally, the last chapter of my book is actually called The Great Reset, which is, you know, we've come through these crises. Uh, the pandemic was absolutely awful for so many people. Um, it is time to, to have a great reset. You know, think about all these crises that we've had. What have we really learned? I think what we've learned is we can make choices to be fairer, greener, and have a society which gives people flexibility, more control over their working lives. You know, we can vote for politicians that um, give us credible policies that provide a greener environment, you know, and we can push companies to do better on sustainability, on, you know, their responsibilities to the communities, the kind of ESG point. So all of those things means that we should be re-examining what we've learned from financial crises and have a great reset. And I think, you know, look at all these things and say, how do we want to live? What kind of world do we want to live in? And we can, you know, all do our, our part because the one big lesson from a century of this is, you know, the consensus shifts. And if you've learned the lessons, the consensus can shift in a positive way to make sure that society is fair, um, give support to people who need it. And, you know, can be more stable. We just have to all pull together and uh, vote for those people who give those to us. Well, the, 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 that's, I mean, the, <laughs> that's the big imponderable. But just before you go, I want to yeah. ask you, right? Because you've, you've obviously enjoyed writing the book. You've had fun with it. The book zips along. It's, it's a great read. What have you learned about us humans from writing this book? I've learned that humans are resilient. I've learned that humans can't resist a good set of rising asset prices. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and sometimes you'll get it right. Sometimes you'll get it wrong. Sometimes it's fundamentals and sometimes it's less so. But what I have learned is, you know, even in the worst crises, you know, society not only comes through, but can come through better. And I think that's been a great lesson That's a pretty nice well, from me. Linda, we will see you at Dorky. You are coming for the Sunday afternoon. We, you and I are going to sit down. We're going to discuss this book in more detail at Dorky. I can't wait to see you. Um, but in the meantime, congratulations. It's a wonderful read. Thank you, David. Can't thank you enough for uh, for inviting me to do this and for kindly hosting me. I can never think of a better host than you. So I'm absolutely thrilled and looking forward to Dorky, which well, is going to be terrific. As you know, in Ireland, flattery gets you everywhere. <laughs> see you soon. Mac, before we go to a break... That's the confused John's antenna are confused, Ed. <laughs> what happened on Halloween night in Hong Kong? Oh, I'll tell you all about that. Do you want to do that now or after the break? After the break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. IMF. IMF. Hong Kong. So, John, it is Hong Kong. It is Halloween night. Yeah. I am staying in the Peninsula Hotel, a place you would only stay if somebody else is paying the bill. Yes. Right? A fancy, fancy you place. You don't pay the bill in your I'm life. Playing. Hey, hey, I've been carrying you all my life. Okay. <laughs> go on. Go on. <laughs> anyway, it's Halloween night. It's 1997. I am at the IMF annual bash representing Banque Nationale de Paris, right. the French bank Good that man. I was working for. And it's in the middle of the Asian crisis, right? So Thailand has just defaulted and devalued. Malaysia okay. is defaulting and devaluing. Indonesia has in the eye of the storm. Yeah. Okay, I'm always, I'm like Zelik. I always end up in troubling places. Yeah. So I turn up here, right? <clears throat> and the reason is that I'm working for... BMP as an economist in emerging markets. So mm. we spoke about last week about doing that sort of from Russia, but the emerging markets covered the whole of the emerging world. So it was always yeah. all those Asian tire economies. But the story, now that you've actually, now that you've actually blacked my whistle, I, first of all, I meet Murphy, our old mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a game of pool in a very dodgy bar, I remember. And I said, look, I've got to get out of here and put on my suit and be sort of Mr. Yeah. Banker. So, but <laughs> the IMF annual bash is what it sounds like. It's an annual bash. So all these finance ministers come in, all these big, big kind of bankers and commentators and journalists, mm. they all come in and everyone goes around, sits around and sounds very clever, right? And then everyone kind of goes in the piss. Yeah, right? okay. And, you know, has dinner and goes and that. And that's what I think I've told you before. I ended up in a bar smoking because I used to smoke back there, yes. right? Drop my pack of fags, go to see a pair of hush puppies beside me. Right. Ken Clark. Do you remember the oh, English? Oh, right. You know, yes. He used to wear hush puppies, yes, he, right? Famously, so sitting, yeah. So he's sitting beside yeah. me and he's chatting. So we all start chatting again. And he's, oh, you're Irish, yada, 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 yada. He tells us a great story. And it's pertinent to what Linda just said. Yeah. Black Wednesday, Ken Clark is the Home Secretary of the United Kingdom. Mm. John Major is the Prime Minister. Heseltine, I think, is the Foreign Minister. Yeah. Norman Lamont is the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yeah. Sterling is collapsing. It's Wednesday, October, I think, 27th. Sterling is falling. Interest rates are rising. These are the five most powerful men in England. Yeah. 
and they are hunched around a transistor in 10 Downing Street, getting their news from the BBC. <laughs> and Ken Clark told me the story, right? Wow. And he tells me, he says, he says, so the world Be- thinks... Before they decide, what, well, what do we do what, next? What the fuck do we do, right? <laughs> but they have no access to the city. They have no access to financial markets, right? It's amazing. So they're it's listening like to BBC world, Radio 4. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. the whole world is listening to. And they're getting their information. Ken Clark says, this is the moment when you realise that power is just an illusion. And it was an amazing story. Because right. everyone thinks that you're privy to so much more information yeah. and you know yeah. what's going on and you've got great advisors. He says, no, we're sitting around like five Egypts. Yeah. Thinking, that's, what do we do now? That's brilliant. And they have to make decisions on the hoof. Yeah. And those decisions are really consequential. And the way Clark tells it, I mean, he's a great storyteller. Yeah. So that was Halloween that's night. That's really Halloween funny. night of 1997. And uh, it, was a, it was actually a fascinating time to be at those sort of meetings because one of the things that's always informed me, as, as you know, is the sort of my understanding of the disconnect between what people perceive powerful people to know and what mm. they actually know. And what people perceive those in power to be able to do and what they're actually able to do. And it's interesting because now you'd always have somebody there who's in the middle of a tweeting it out in real time. Yes, exactly. Where, whereas, whereas then it was like, we yeah, had yeah. no information. Absolutely. We had no information. Let me take it back to Linda there, because there is one point that I do, there's many points you can pick up on, yeah. but one point in particular is, she was talking about tools and financial tools. <laughs> I'm looking at one. <laughs> you got in there before me. I'm just... Exactly, I knew you. But, John had a few gargles last night, so he's not as quick as he should he otherwise be. Otherwise, he's lightning quick. But today, I can hear, I can hear the I, gears kind of yeah, yeah, inside the head. They're a bit rusty. But, uh, so she was talking about tools like inflation, for instance. Yes, you yeah. have interest rate as a tool too. Yeah, yeah. But she also talked about macro... Prudential. Prudential, right. yes. As I said, uh, you know, I've always thought that smart casual is the most terrifying expression <laughs> in the English language. If anybody says, what's the dress code? Is it smart casual? Like, oh my God, you know, there's going to be problems, right? So macro prudential is, again, one of those indecipherable economic terms which seems to go out to mangle the English language. Mm. So prudential means looking after the house, right? Yeah. Prudential means being prudent being careful, right? Yeah, yeah. Macro means uh, the big economy as opposed to micro. Yeah. So macro prudential means being careful what you do with the economy. Right? Just think about this. Okay. okay. So what does that mean, right? It means how can the central bankers of the world, look, I mean, again, it all comes back to 2008. All these tulips missed it, mm. right? And then... After it happens, they say, oh, my good God, we missed it. So now we're going to put in things to make sure we don't miss it again. Yeah. Right? Okay. Rather than get out the macro prudential book. So we get out the macro prudential book. It's like we go to the library, we get out the macro prudential book, and we come up with it. It's Radio 4. What are they saying? They tune into this podcast. That's where they get their exactly. information. Exactly. So so they get the macro prudential. To, so basically, the problem is, right, interest rates, very blunt instrument. Right now, we're experiencing the problem. Mm. Central bankers want to eradicate inflation. Inflation has taken off. They raise interest rates. But raising interest rates tends to precipitate recessions. Recessions mean that loans go bad, okay? That loans that were taken out in good times Mm, mm. are not being able to pay back the bad times. So the 
added consequence of that is that banks become more fragile, mm. right? So you raise interest rates in order to crush inflation, but you might end up crushing your banking system. So they said, yeah. okay, we need to yeah. come up with another tool, right? Yeah. And this is just, you know, another tool is basically a whole set of ratios that banks can't lend above, okay. a whole set of capital adequacy ratios that they have liquid assets, a whole sense of you need on your balance sheet these types of assets and you can't lend out too yep. much. Problem with all that is banks are cleverer than regulators, right? Because the regulator has always got a top-down view. Mm. It's basically like, it's, it's, it's why thieves are always a little bit ahead of those yeah. who they rob from as yeah. a general rule. So what has happened here is that all these rules and regulations that regulators put into place after having missed the crush are simply a target to break for most operators, yeah. right? Yeah, That's yeah, the yeah. first thing. And therefore, as a consequence of that, you have these constant, constant problems with central banks and banks. There was a good piece written by Mervyn King, who's the former governor of the Bank of England. Yeah. Don't always agree with him, but he's a clever fella. And he wrote a piece in the Financial Times last week, which said that banks should have an open-ended source of finance from central banks. They should have an overdraft, a constant overdraft. Right, okay. And that constant overdraft should allow them to deal with financial crises. But but surely that just gives them a license to go crazy because they're exactly. always going to be bailed this, out. This is, the, this is the moral hazard argument. Right, yeah, that, that, yeah. That yeah. if I give you, it's a bit like you say to your kids, don't worry, you'll have an overdraft tomorrow. Yeah, and yeah. what do they do? They, they go to town and spend it. Uh, absolutely. And they say nothing. Yeah. And they don't tell you. Until the, until the bill comes in, until the invoices thing. Clearly something happened in the McWilliams household. That happens all the bloody time. Just remember I was telling you, our, our kids, the difference between the issuer and the user of money. They yeah. think I'm the issuer, yeah. right? They think, they think we've got a little money machine down the basement, yeah. like, like, like a potato peeler. Yeah. Just, just press grind print. it out. Anyway, that's macroprudential. Right, right? okay. It's yet another gimmick introduced by central bankers and regulators to try and right human behavior. But human behavior is at the epicenter of all this. The great expression is the worst financial decisions are taken in what appear to be the best of times. So we, as this beautiful emotional animal, we always get overconfident. Yeah. Right. We always try to say, ah, this time is different. It won't happen to yeah. me. I'll buy that. That'll go up. Or I'll get out before everybody else. And it never happens which is why we go up and we go down. And when we go up, we think this Woo! can't possibly stop. And when it goes down, we think it can never end. And it always does. And we dust ourselves down, John, and we start again. And that's where we're going to end. Into King's. Into King's Bar. <laughs> two cheese and onion, two pints of stout, and then you can tell me all about minx. Right. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.